We're nearly there. Spring in a couple of days. More sun, less rain, and time to plant the veggies for summer. But this is Tuesday Home Time with Joan Bartlett today. And on the program, we'll find out about the Taiwan lobby with Humphrey McQueen, historian and author. The wash-up of the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty meeting in New York with Dr Margie Beavis, who attended representing ICANN, International Campaign Against Nuclear Weapons, and MAPW, Medical Association Prevention of War. Wayne Wadsworth, better known as Wadsey, about his plans to green the desert. And Lionel Opuji, assessing the situation in his home country, Sri Lanka. But first, Mr Kevin Healy with his week that was. A week, Jane Lister, when as the excitement builds leading into this week's Accord Mark II, caring employers are fighting economy-destroying proposals from the evil unions like sector-wide bargaining, the right to strike, and worse, pay rises, with the poor caring employers pointing out that the biggest barrier to workers getting a pay rise is a pay rise. Clearly and obviously, if workers want a pay rise, the last thing they need is a pay rise. Our old mate Innes Will Costa workers of the True Blue Aussie Industry Profits Group spoke for the sundry caring employers and their good, good unions like the Chambers of Profits. Sector-wide bargaining would return us to the 1970s, they pointed out, back to the dark days before former Socialist Party big supremo nuclear hawk himself and the world's greatest worst ex-treasurer, Paul, reformed the economy to ensure workers did not receive a pay rise and the public purse picked up their caring employers' responsibilities as it should. And evil unions became irrelevant. The glory days caring employers keep telling the Socialist Party it must relive. The only thing we'd agree to about the dark days of the 70s would be pay levels remaining at 70s pay levels. <laughs> they joked, displaying caring employers' side-splitting sense of humour. Then again, it mightn't have been a joke, because relatively they are lower. No, no, it was a joke, a very, very funny joke, because we all know how concerned caring employers are about slow-wage growth, how much sleep they lose worrying about it. And showing their greatest desire is lazy, avaricious workers should receive a pay rise, while knowing a pay rise is not the way to get a pay rise, great supermarket calls for profit supremo Stephen Kane, the workers, said... Only fixing the enterprise bargaining system and simplifying awards would achieve caring employers' greatest wish. See, what better way for checkout workers, for instance, to get huge wage increases in improved conditions than sitting down one-on-one with Stephen and negotiating on equal terms? With simplified rules like getting rid of the better-off overall test, give boot the boot, because um, Stephen and innocent caring employers know that if workers are going to be better off, they must be, which is all the caring employers want, by the way, then they must be worse off. And Stephen's generous generosity also runs to the customers enjoying the fabulous inflationary prices on his shelves. As farmers tell us, they have been forced to cut their prices in order to flog their produce to cause for profits and Woolworths trillions and we can be certain those cuts will be reflected in their prices because ripping off their suppliers and their customers and their workers would be the last thing the great supermarkets would want to do. 
And then the unkindest cut of all. The small business profits organisation's True Blue Aussie came out and said they would consider sector-wide bargaining in return for simplified awards, leaving poor Innes and Stephen and the big, big caring employers gasping for air. Oh yes, we can see a court, Mark II, concluding with all caring employers and the evil unions marching arm in arm into the stock exchange, taking true blue capitalism into a united future. The airline which used to be our airline, Supremo Allen Joystick, apologised for long delays and massive inconvenience, blaming a chronic staff shortage as the big problem. Uh, is that the thousands of workers you've sacked, Alan? Oh, sorry, sadly had to let go. Obviously not, because they're not there anymore. No, the sadly had to be let go, well, had to be let go for efficiency. And what's the current problem? Uh, inefficiency. That's it. No, no, it's also due to unrealistic expectations of customers who think they can just come to the airport and catch a plane. Nonetheless, generous, generous Owen offered frequent flyers a few little benefits as compensation, which would have worked a treat, except within about a minute and a half, the line dedicated to the offer crashed, and the only frequent was the catastrophes befalling the airline that used to be our airline. The few little benefits were useless. With privatisation delivering such efficiency and social benefit, let's hope the government rethinks its declaration that it will not privatise the NBN network when the NBN network is ready to start making a neat little profit. Expressed on behalf of the efficient private sector this week by one of the private sector's journalistic lackeys in the True Blue Aussie Capitalist Review, who said the government must privatise the NBN when it starts making a neat little profit and privatise True Blue Aussie Post and any other government asset turning over a neat little profit. Privatisation should not be a dirty word, he wrote. Selling public assets should be done to enable private sector innovation and efficiency, reduce government debt, introduce new tax-paying corporations, and maximise competition to benefit consumers through better services than cheaper prices. Well, the wheat that wasn't has been saying that for years. We've loved the efficiency and cheaper prices of electricity, gas, airports, and our one's airline that used to be our airline is a prime example of efficiency and cheaper fares and collecting billions in corporate welfare. And that important point, new tax-paying corporations, although apart from providing lots more income for tax lawyers and tax accountants, making sure they pay no tax, the tax they avoid would be a small percentage of their profits, which if the asset was still in the bloated, inefficient hands of the public sector, would all go to the public purse. But, but that shows how silly I am, given the Capitalist Review capitalist lackey is an expert in these things, and who are we to disagree? And our one joystick is a prime example of the great benefits of privatisation, like our cheap, 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 efficient power bills. Oh dear, yet again we're in the satire can't compete department like Lord Rupert of Wapping Scion Lockwood is suing Crikey over an article Lockie says defamed him was not accurate reporting. Let's repeat that. Lockwood Murdoch is suing another media outlet for defamation for inaccurate reporting he claims over Lockie's role as supremo of that right of the right outlet Fox News, nothing but the facts news. Uh, but Lockie, you've argued that our 
defamation laws were too restrictive, that they limited your capacity to defame. You've always argued for freedom of speech in the media. And I still uphold those cherished democratic values. I uphold the right of news very limited to the fame, to say what we like. But, but that doesn't give our upstart competition the right to say hurtful things about me. And thankfully, due to our lobbying, the defamation laws have been eased so we can sue anyone who defames us. As if who would believe nothing but the tax facts news would whip up a right-wing neo-fascist mob. Poor Daddy, who's devoted his life to objective, balanced journalism, was so upset when he heard that. Interesting that, describing what appears in News Very Limited as journalism. Still, I reckon Lockie and Lord Rupert should sue former big supremo little Kevin Rod for the workers, who persists with his cruel call for a Her Most Gracious Majesty's commission into media concentration, just because Lord Rupert and Lockie concentrate on bringing us all the news we need to know and not bringing us all the news we don't need to know. Little Kevin dredging up thousands of signatures calling for for the con mission showing how thousands of people can be brainwashed. Anathema to Lord Rupert and Lockie. And despite the socialist government again iterating it has no intention of inquiring into the Lord Rupert News very limited empire, showing there's obviously no need, particularly when Lord Rupert brings us the big news of the day, like just this Monday when the front page and pages two and three in his whopping sin were ads for a pay TV show, and then P5, the first right-hand news page, the big, big story of the day, a picky of a young actor looking distressed, telling us she is suffering from something or other happening on her social media, and goodness me, guess what pay TV show she just happens to be in. That was the biggest item in the world that day. So with such responsible and important journalism, what's little Kevy carrying on about? Same satire can't compete department, former whiteboard sports fraud specialist Bridget McConnell uh, C commenting on her former big supremo Scuttle Ben Morlash son, aka Scummo, making himself Minister for Just Everything, said we must ensure integrity in government. Okay, let's repeat that one. Former Minister for Sports Rorts Bridget McConnell-MC says we must, must ensure integrity in government. Satire can't compete. As usual, consistency was the big theme, with Deputy Caring Business Class Party Supremos Susan Lees and Dregs picking up the It Comes Back to Bite You Award of the Week, attacking the socialist decision to inquire into Scummo's Ministry of Just Everything, pointing out sensibly that they are looking at the past, looking backward, and we must move forward. This is history. Uh, but Susan, when former Big Supremo Tiny a bit more for the bosses became Big Supremo, he held a Her Most Gracious Majesty's Royal Commission into Pink Bats and the Smash the Evil Union's Commission, including a term of reference investigating then-Socialist Party Supremo Little Billy Shorten Ambition's actions when he was an evil union official ten years earlier. Well, um, an official in a non non-evil union 10 years earlier. You can't compare them. That was essential to expose just how evil the evil unions and the Socialist Party are. There is no comparison. This is a socialist witch hunt. We would never conduct a witch hunt 
Stoop to a witch hunt. How dare you compare poor scummo with evil unions and evil socialists? Well, that put us in our place. As Trubler was, he agrees to spend trillions on train killer helicopters from the US of the UN of the US of the world merchants of death industry. A US of train killer department person said the purchase was vital to the US of national interest. And it won't hurt the interests of their merchants of death either. So money well spent, and it's not like there's other needs in Trublowazi's national interest. Like leading up to our finally indigenous disadvantage, which I uh, raised because an academic applied for a research grant and the body which approves these things, things rejected it with the question, what has indigenous disadvantage got to do with the national interest? Huh? See, satire is just useless today. After the third attempt, by the way, the academic was told next time it would be rejected outright, leading us to, finally, I'm starting to panic about this indigenous voice to Parliament, which I've learned is wrong in principle, wrong in principle. We'll have something approaching a veto, something approaching a veto, Leave government action more open to legal challenge. More open to legal challenge. Yes, a timely warning from the aforementioned tiny a bit more for the bosses, supported by no less a champion of the first people, another former big supremo, little Johnny Howard. It would fuel division and have a coercive influence on the government. It really would. And cruelly, cruelly, listener, big supremo Anthony Albing Uzi countered with uh, with respect to little Johnny, I don't think overwhelmingly I would think of his government as a model of how to advance reconciliation. How disrespectful, when obviously, thanks to two eminent true blue Aussies like Tiny and little Johnny, we should all be afraid, very afraid, of an invasion on white civilization, planting an indigenous flag in Botany Bay and laying claim to our country. Good afternoon. Mr. Kevin Healy, and tomorrow it's City Limits at 9 o'clock on 3CR. Stay tuned in to 3CR Community Radio. This month, Melbourne's beloved art house Cinema Nova turns 30 and is inviting you to celebrate. Revisit Cinema Nova favourites with a curated program of popular features that Melbourne movie lovers took to their hearts, including Parasite, Call Me By Your Name, Ligon Street, Si Parla Italiano, and more. Tickets on sale now. Cinema Nova, Melbourne's favourite independent cinema since 1992. A 3CR supporter. Tune in to Stick Together, all about workers' rights and social justice. 8.30am Wednesday, 7am Saturday. Or listen on demand on 3CR's website, 3cr.org.au.
3CR is about community and we welcome your participation at the station. 3CR is open to a wide diversity of volunteers and is a great way to connect with Melbourne's activist community. Have you ever thought about volunteering, doing a reception shift, getting a program on air, training in radio skills or contributing to one of the station's committees? There are many ways to be involved at 3CR. To find out more, go to 3cr.org.au and get in touch. Even before Pelosi, they came. I'm talking about US politicians visiting Taiwan, and in recent days, another two have made the journey. Marxist historian and author Humphrey McQueen sees these visits as part of the Taiwan lobby. In order to understand anything about the Taiwan mainland relationship, you have to start with the Taiwan funders. All of the money that pours that out of Taiwan and into the United States and into the US Congress to buy people. And they've been doing that really since the 1930s when it wasn't too bad then in those days because they were trying to get support against the Japanese. But since the, the Red Bandits took over on the mainland, the Taiwan lobby has been there, A, trying to get support for Generalissimo cash my check to support that Taiwanese remnant that had escaped off the mainland in 48-49 and then constantly to pressure everyone in the world not to recognise the mainland. Well, of course, 70, 71, 72, that was a lost cause in the main. However, they're still at it. All these little island states around the world that still recognise Taiwan, they're in the pay of the Taiwan lobby. They don't just do it out of the goodness of their heart. And when Speaker Pelosi and the and the Democrat Congress members go off to Taiwan, the question you have to ask yourself is, how much is the Taiwan lobby in the US putting into the political action committees for all those members of Congress? We just know that apart from a few of the recent people who have been elected, some of the more radical ones, they're all on the take from the, the Riflemen's Association, the pharmaceutical corporations, they're all bought and sold. And one of the you know, people who buy them is the government on Taiwan and the corporations around them and the ones that are fundamentally rooted inside the United States as well. So before you start thinking about any other question as to what's going on, you have to ask the old rule, follow the money. We hear a lot of talk about, oh, Beijing is bribing people. Well, it may be, but if it is, it's only counter-bribing to what's been going on from Taiwan for all this time. So that's the first important point, I think, to, to remind people of. And as far as I know, it's not a question I've heard asked on the big thinking ABC. Even any mention of the Taiwan lobby, I think, doesn't quite get there, does it? And I think the next point to remind people of is that, as well as the Taiwanese, there were the Formosans. There was an indigenous population on the island long before the Han Chinese turned up in the 1600s. And some of them, poor buggers, are still there. I mean, they've had as bad a time as any indigenous population anywhere in the world. They got screwed by the Han when they first turned up. Then, when the Japanese turned up from 1895 to 1945, and they resisted, part of the sort of national resistance movement, the Japanese whacked them again. And then, when the Japanese were forced to go away again, 
and the Kuomintang took over, a particularly nasty version of the Kuomintang leader, a general there, and that's saying something to say that because they were all very nasty, but he was a, even worse than most of them. He was put in charge of Formosa and screwed them all again. But by that stage, of course, he was not only the Formosans had joined up partly in the opposition to the Japanese, but the national resistance movement on the mainland, which included the more progressive elements around the nationalist movement and some links to the Communist Party. So from 47 to 49, they got a very, very bad treatment. And then, of course, when General Ishimo Cash by check turns up with his KMT army and all the loot that they can carry out of the mainland, the Formosans are you know, at the bottom of the pile again. But again, people talk about, oh, the, you know, the independence for the, for the Taiwanese. Well, let's start by saying what's happened to the indigenous population. What state are the Formosans in? How often do you ever hear them discussed again on the big thinking ABC or anywhere else? Would you even know that you know, the Formosans, you're not really racially separate because, I mean, that's a sort of bizarre non-scientific term anyway, but they aren't the same as the Han Chinese. So we've got to remember them as well in this story as to where they are. And as I said, you know, we have to remember that the Japanese were there for 50 years. And one of the reasons why the mainland is so determined in the long run that to reunite the country, it's a way of erasing the fact that the Japanese had taken the island away from them. I've said before, the problem the Chinese on the mainland have is that unlike us, we don't remember any of these things. Nobody in Australia talks about the Anzacs or Gallipoli or Kokoda. We've forgotten about all of that. And the problem with the Chinese is that they refuse to forget the Opium Wars, they refused to forget the Japanese invasion, they refused to forget the Japanese occupation of Taiwan for 50 years. They've got to get over it. And then they can be like us. I mean, these are some of the things that, you know, that we don't have in the main area of debate about what's going on between the mainland and the, the KMT, cash my check. And the other thing we need to remember about all of this is that until... 1991, 31 years ago, the government on Taiwan, the KMT, claimed to be the government of all of China, including Tibet, I might throw in. They were the government of all of China. This, this notion that it's only the mainland that's claiming Taiwan, for the first 42 years they were there, they claimed to be the government of the whole of the island. And that what was in occupancy in Beijing were only the wicked red bandits. And people talk about who's being aggressive. It's often been suggested that the US had the Seventh Fleet patrolling up and down the Straits of Taiwan, partly to stop the Chinese on the mainland invading Taiwan, but also to stop Chiang Kai-shek sending raiding parties across into the mainland China because they were the ways in which he was going to assert and remind people, remind the other Chinese, that he was actually the government of the whole country and these bloody red bandits, they were going to be overthrown. And when I say they woke up by 91, they said, we, we can't pretend that that's the case anymore. Well, with all the stories about China and Taiwan, does anyone ask the Taiwanese or the Formosans now 
what they're thinking, what life is like for them, what they would like for themselves? Well, I don't think anybody asked for Formosans. I mean, I think we're pretty sure about that. Perhaps the United Nations Congress of, you know, the First Peoples, they might get a voice in there. But like the poor bloody Ainu in Japan, officially they don't exist. Now, as for the Taiwanese, here it gets complicated. In a legal sense, there is no doubt, international law, that Taiwan is part of the mainland. There's just one country. The Australian government recognises that, the US government, Japan, India, everyone. In order to recognise China, you have to accept that they are the government of Taiwan. And if you don't do that, you're not allowed to recognise them. But some of the dingbats here, if they want to you know, say, oh, we're going to recognise Taiwan as a separate country, well, they can do that. And what will the economic consequences for Australia be? We'll just disappear down the gurgle, totally. Because under those circumstances, the mainland government will simply say, you don't exist. We do not deal with people who recognise Taiwan as a separate country. However, something has happened, of course, because this has been going on from late, well, 48, 49. It's now over 70 years. The first couple of generations... Naturally, the Chinese and their culture and their the whole range of superstitions they, they have in their, their particular culture, where the ancestors were buried was vitally important to them. And their ancestors were buried on the mainland. So they had that extra link to why they wanted to be connected in some way or other back to mainland China. Now, of course, in the 70-plus years, a couple of generations have grown up whose might be great-grandparents are buried on the mainland, but their grandparents and even their parents are going to be buried on the island of Taiwan, Formosa. So that a whole other way of thinking, generations have grown up there. Of course, they think of themselves as culturally Chinese, as they do in Singapore and you know, Australia, everywhere. I mean, they don't actually stop thinking of themselves in those Chinese terms. But the notion that they are, you know, their country, the way they've lived there, you know, they've finally got the achievement of a kind of bourgeois democracy after the military dictatorship of the KMT. They just expect to be able to vote and change the government without the army intervening. Now, that's not the case on the mainland. Their very notion of, yes, they would like to be part of one country, but not if it means being part of a country that is so remote from the way in which those couple of generations have come to understand who they are. And we can see this fairly clearly in the voting pattern because the old KMT has been revived over the last 20 years, but they still basically run the line, we're all part of one China. Their vote has dropped enormously. Not, I think, because people are saying, well... We don't want to be part of China. What they're saying is we don't want to be part of this China. We've developed a whole other way here of being Chinese in the same way that they have on Singapore, the same way that, that they had on Hong Kong until very, very recently. That's, I think, the longer question. In the same way that you know the poor old Scots have finally decided after being hammered into the union with Britain in 1707 that they want to be independent again. And the same is true for the Catalans around Barcelona. They've been arguing, you know, for hundreds of years that, you know, no, 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 we should be a separate country. 
we should go back to where we were before we got taken over by the central government in Madrid. And, I mean, that kind of development is going on around the world all the time. So at some stage, you know, in the next 50, 100 years or so, it's not impossible and not necessarily a disastrous thing that, the, you know, the Taiwanese did become a separate country. But in the current international situation, the whole question about Taiwan's independence is a way in which the U.S. corporate warfare state makes itself look good by pretending to support national independence when, of course, around the world, there is no greater enemy of national independence for country after country after country, including, I might say, Germany and France, which is what the North Atlantic Treaty Organization exists for, to keep the Germans and the French under control. At the moment, the question as to where the Taiwan question fits in can't be taken out of the question of, of global power politics and this battle between the Chinese and the United States for hegemony, at least in East Asia and fairly big areas around the Pacific, if not in this fantasy that the Chinese are going to take over the world. Can you explain then if all these countries, including Australia, recognise that Taiwan is a part of China, what is Australia and others sending warships and planes in that area to cause trouble? Well, the reason Australia does it is because the US does it. No one in Australia woke up one morning and thought, oh, what a good idea if we send a warship to the Taiwan Straits. We do it like we do everything else because either we're told to do it or the leadership in Canberra thinks, oh, how can we ingratiate ourselves to the US even more? We'll we'll kind of do a preemptive buckle and we'll get in first, which is what we were trying to do in Vietnam in the 1960s. You know, I mean, it's, a, it's, it's an old tack here. What's going on, as I've been you know, trying to spread out, as far as the US is concerned, is part of the long-term concern about who's going to rule the world. You know, I mean, they've spent the last you know, 110 years since the, the first great slaughter from 1914 to 1918, making sure that they came out on top, as they did uh, 1418, as they did again, in 39-45, as I said, you know, they put the North Atlantic Treaty Organization in to keep you know, Germany and France and the other European countries under control. It wasn't just aimed at keeping, the, at keeping the Soviets back in the Warsaw Pact area. It was making sure that their allies didn't do a runner on them and that the, you know, the German economy would, would take over from them or that now the European economy as a whole could, you know, could take over from them. So as far as, as far as the US imperialists are concerned, it's a very different story that they are concerned about where they're going to be in another 50 years' time. And I know there's a lot of talk about, oh, the Chinese economy is going to be this big by, you know, 2030 and 2040. It may be. It's not impossible. But some of us are old enough to remember when this was going to happen to the Japanese economy. In 88, 89, 90, the Japanese are going to take over the world. They're going to take over Australia by buying up bits of land here and there and on the Gold Coast and the Japanese economy was powering ahead. And you know, What happened? 1990, 91, it fell into a hole and it, 30 years later, it's still digging itself out. 
Now, there's no reason to suppose that the Chinese economy is going to keep going on for ever and ever. I'm not going to start predicting a date in which, you know, the Chinese economy will begin to implode. But the amount of financial debt in China, both in the government sector and in the non-government sector, is mind-boggling. I mean, you can't get your mind around how big it is. I mean, it started when they boosted the economy over the East Asia crisis in 97, 98. And they were supposed to pay all those debts off within 10 years. Well, they didn't. They just put them into things called bad banks. So they weren't really on the wrong side of the ledger. And lo and behold, when it was all supposed to be done within 10 years, it happens to be 2008. And they have to do it all again. This time, it's a global financial crisis. And they keep pumping out money, spending, spending, spending. And they've kept being able to do it. How they keep doing it, the Japanese have done the same, the US has done the same. I, don't, I do not understand, I don't pretend to understand how these corporate economies can keep going by pumping out all of this debt without one day the whole thing imploding on them. So it's not beyond the bounds of possibility. In a year or two or in 10 years, that it will all get out of control and that the Chinese, the Japanese, you know, because as I said before, if the Chinese go down economically, it's the end of us. The only reason that we've, in Australia, that we hadn't had any kind of a recession here for the last 25 years is because Chinese did all this pump priming, what in the West we call quantitative easing. They're pumping more and more money into the construction sector. Now we see, yet again, big problems in the construction sector, not just in Australia, but in China. And there, these are multi-billion dollar collapses all over the country. So the fear that the US has that the Chinese are going to take over them, it could happen, but that's what they're planning around. And all of their strategies about lining us up and everybody else up to be you know, put troops in, you know, ships, military ships up and down the, uh, up and down the Taiwan Strait is part of this economic demand to continue to rule the world. Because if they don't, they can't go on either. They are able to get away with what they can do because they can make everybody else through their military power, through their spy networks, through their agents of influence like Bob Hawke and people in Australia. One needn't mention any members of the current government. But they're everywhere, and they need to keep being able to do that to keep on ruling the world financially so that they don't suffer from a collapse in their economy and in the American currency. They've had a couple of close calls over the last 50 or 60 years about that, so it can happen even to them. Do the two careers fit in to what you've been saying? Well, they do in that broad sense that, You've got to remember that it's not just putting ships up and down the Taiwan Straits. The U.S. corporate warfare state occupies Japan. It occupies South Korea. It occupies the Philippines, Guam, and now it's occupying Australia. I mean, it's occupied Australia with Pine Gap and other things for, you know, 60 or 70 years. But now they are moving their bases out of Guam in case something goes wrong there and putting them into northern Australia. 
what we have to look at is South Korea and Japan and those places as part of this great arc around mainland China. So that their occupancy of South Korea, I mean, it's not in the, the interest of the US corporate welfare state for there to be peace on the Korean peninsula again, you know, to solve the, the Korean problem. If you think that what I was saying before about the complications of the culture between Taiwan and the mainland, uh, you know, are complicated. You want to try drawing a line between what's going on in the north and what's going on in the south and has gone on there for the last 70 years as well. Yes, they might all think of themselves as Koreans. And in thinking of themselves as Koreans, they certainly don't think of themselves as Japanese. I mean, they hate the Japanese for what they did to them with as much, if not more, passion than, than the Chinese do. But equally, they don't see themselves as sort of agents of China. Certainly, there's no sense in which the Communist Party, well, what do they call themselves, uh, the Korean Workers' Party, I think could only be described as a militarised monarchy ruling in what we call North Korea, the Democratic People's Republic of Korea. It has nothing to do with communism. In a way, they restored the Korean monarchy, which the Japanese overthrew and killed the Queen in 1910. I, mean, I know it's a very strange thing to drop into the conversation, but it's a way of reminding us of how different the Korean situation is and how different North Korea is to Vietnam or to mainland China or to you know, any of the other communist countries in the world. It's a very particular Korean experience. Well, some people see Australia as part of Asia. There are nevertheless many who argue that Australia should not be involved in another war in Asia. There's a sense, if I could divert for a moment, Australia in some ways is the most Asian country in, in the whole of the, of the Indian Pacific region. And I say Asian because we have a complexity of Asian populations here that no Asian country has. In Japan, for example, apart from the poor bloody Koreans leftovers who were dragged there to be slave labourers during the, the period from 1910 to 1945 and their, their descendants, there's really no cultural ethnic diversity. They brought in a few Middle Eastern labourers to overcome the building crisis and things. But unlike Australia, you know, there is no diversity there. Whereas here, I mean, we have actually, it's interesting, we have fewer as a percentage, fewer people of Japanese descent in Australia than we do of any of the other Asian countries, whether it's Nepal or uh, India or Pakistan, Ceylon. You think, of course, they're there. They're everywhere. So that, in a way, we've got to stop thinking of ourselves as a non-Asian country and look at the percentages of the population here that begin to make all this up again. I mean, I'm, I'm not quite sure. I think it's some enormous percentage of the population now have some Asian ancestry. You know, the days in which there were sort of, you know, three or four hundred Chinese left after the white Australia policy, now it's something like 20, 25% of Australians in some way or other uh, have an Asian heritage to, to this. So that the notion of, of, our, of our going to war with them, I don't think very many of the politicians actually think in terms of in terms of actually having to go to war about it. I think, you know, they've been sold the line that, well, if we take a strong stand, that will avoid war. 
But I think there are people uh, in the universities and in some of the think tanks around the place and in some areas of the armed forces who do accept this line that's come out of the Council of Foreign Relations in the United States that what they need is not just to pressure the Chinese in order to get what the US needs, but they could get away with a limited nuclear war against China. And they've written about this, and they actually talk about it. These people are crackpots, but they occupy very important positions within the policy establishments in parts of the United States. And there are a few acolytes here, but you don't hear very much talk about it here. You don't even hear very much talk about people exposing it, that this is what, in a way, by linking us more and more into the United States, we are being more and more linked into people who think they could get away with a limited nuclear war. They're only going to put it in a little way. Well, you know, even to think about it in any rational way, you think, how could anyone think that? But they write books about it. And things like the Council of Foreign Relations, who are a central organising group in thinking about foreign policy, you know, as the name implies. They've been doing that for decades. These people are thinking in terms of a limited nuclear war. And this is why it's so important to get all these basic facts correct about where Taiwan fits into China, what our real diplomatic position is, and to try and get some deep understanding of what these fundamentals are and not be swept along. I mean, I don't know what Fox News or anything, I mean, anywhere, but God knows what madness has been poured out there around the social media about it. But the ABC, it's just an utter disgrace. It is, as I say, a relay station for the voices of America. And that's why, as I think I said to you last time, it's why we so need other voices like 3CR to be able to get some of these basic facts out to people who can then spread them further around. People are shocked when I point out to them. I mean, people on the left who should know better are shocked when I remind them that until 1991, the government on Taiwan claimed to be the government of all of China. I mean, that in itself really sets people back on their heels and they start thinking, oh, that's not how I've been taught to view what has been going on and what is likely to happen in the future. All of these things, we have to get the stories out there so that we can in have a better chance of preventing the crackpots being able to get their way. Thanks, Humphrey. My pleasure. And next up with Humphrey McQueen in a couple of weeks' time, the so-called war between China and India in 1962. Hi, I'm Ahmed from Fridway Primary School and you're listening to Community Radio on 3CR. So it's up to us, the people. We need a treaty in this country. We need the end to the war in this country. And the only way we can do that is through a peace treaty. Not the one you see in Victoria, not the one you see in Queensland, not the one you see in the Northern Territory. 
because they talk treaty and still lock our people up. They still kill our people. They still desecrate our land and our water. A treaty means peace. A treaty means equality. And a treaty means justice. Thank you. You're listening to Radical Radio on 3CR, 855 on your AM dial, 3CR digital, and podcasting and streaming on 3cr.org.au. revolution in Rojava is a beacon of hope for the world, putting direct democracy and feminism into practice on a broad scale. This radical attempt at social transformation now faces huge challenges, including daily attacks by the Turkish military with little outside recognition or aid. Show your support for Rojava by joining North East Syria Solidarity, or NESS, and help ensure the survival of this inspiring experiment in social change. NESS sends aid, raises awareness, and builds solidarity. Get involved at www.nessolidarity.org.au. NESS is a 3CR supporter. Reading from a report in the lead-up to the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty meeting. As tensions in the Pacific and the war in Europe continue to escalate, Australia could play an important global role in reducing the spread and threat of nuclear weapons at an important conference in New York. The Australian government has been urged to adopt four key policy goals to reduce the risk of nuclear war in the lead-up to the much-anticipated 10th Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty Review Conference, commencing in New York on the 1st of August. The research finds that the Albanese government has an opportunity to invigorate efforts to reduce the spread of weapons after stalled progress in recent years. When I recorded this interview, the 10th Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty Review Conference was nearly at his conclusion. The conference had been scheduled several years earlier, but was delayed during the COVID pandemic. But Dr Margie Beavis, wearing her hat as co-chair of ICANN, International Campaign Against Nuclear Weapons Australia, was there early in the month, and also representing MAPW, the Medical Association for the Prevention of War. She's safely back home, and my first question to her was, was this your first visit to New York, the United Nations, after the momentous one in July 2017? First time back to the United Nations. So how was um, it? Tell us what it was like going I was, back. I was there very briefly. I was there for a couple of days. It was interesting, a completely different vibe, really, with the Non-Proliferation Treaty Review Conference compared to the Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons. As most of your listeners would be aware, the NPT has been around for more than 50 years and has quite a sort of, has a month-long review conference. It's very structured. And 
I mean, as I said, I was only there for two days, so I'm certainly no expert on how it runs, but it didn't have the energy and the sort of vibrancy of 122 nations pushing together to really get a treaty passed. It was much more of a considered process. What was your contribution and why were you there? Look, I was there because I can and maybe they'll so the International Campaign to Abolish Nuclear Weapons here in Australia and the Medical Association for Prevention of War are pretty concerned about the lack of debate about these nuclear submarines. The AUKUS submarines that were announced with a huge fanfare and a really lovely announcement with Joe Biden and Boris Johnson and Scott Morrison and lots of flags last year has really had very little debate um, and it's much, much more than... The submarines are much more than a defence acquisition. These submarines are really risk undermining the non-proliferation treaty because what they do is they represent highly enriched uranium, in other words, bomb fuel, bomb-grade uranium, coming from a nuclear weapon state and being passed to a non-nuclear weapon state. And Australia says, oh, this will make, we will put on such good safeguards, such good inspections that this will make the whole thing safer. Well, sorry, this is a process that once Australia is using this sort of loophole in the non-proliferation treaty, a whole lot of other countries picked up their ears and said, oh, we want nuclear submarines too. So since Australia's proposal has been put forward, Japan, the Republic of Korea, South Korea, Pakistan and Iran have all said, oh, I think we think we'll get nuclear-powered submarines. Brazil was already on the way to getting nuclear-powered submarines, but their submarines were going to be powered with low-enriched uranium, which is much less of a threat to weapons proliferation. So the Australians are saying, oh, we'll do this with the best possible safeguards. Well, these submarines are stealth by design, they're designed to be stealthy. They're designed to go to sea for up to six months at a time. We're not saying that Australia wants to acquire nuclear weapons, but if a country were to wish to acquire highly enriched uranium, saying that you wanted a submarine, you could these subs can disappear for six months at a time. I mean, you could pop up anywhere and if you wanted to dismantle and acquire this uranium, or you could use it as a justification for an enrichment program that you had already going, such as in Iran. So by having these submarines, it's complicated, but these submarines potentially really undermine non-proliferation efforts that have not been perfect, but have held but have held nuclear weapons at bay a bit, quite a lot, um, globally for 50 years. And, and we were we were there basically to point out that these nuclear submarines were a major problem for the non-proliferation treaty, because of course this August there has been the review conference there in the United Nations for the Non-Proliferation Treaty. Who was listening to you? The key audience members for us were not just the diplomats and the non-government organisations, but it was that the Australian government representatives heard the problems that we saw with these submarines. So it was good. I met with the head of delegation and a couple of other senior officials the day before our presentation. And then on the day of the presentation, Two of those people and another senior person came along. So that was good. This means that these concerns will be reported back to Canberra. In addition to the risks of proliferation, there's the risks of starting an arms race regionally. And we certainly put a lot of our 
regional neighbours offside. Indonesia is very concerned about the proliferation risk of these nuclear submarines, as are a number of other nations in Asia. These submarines tie us very closely to the US submarine fleet. We do not have the capability of maintaining these submarines ourselves, and also these submarines, yet again, we're buying long-range offensive weapons. These submarines are very badly suited to defending Australia. They, these submarines make us less able to defend ourselves because they're very large and really poorly suited to the relatively shallow waters north of Australia. And I suppose, Margie, it's like a lot of the military hardware that Australia has or, or wants is, is geared for the Americans' wars. Well, it was really concerning to hear Richard Miles go over to Washington and make a statement that they wanted to go beyond interoperability into interchangeability. And that means more and more Australian servicemen will be embedded in the US military. And already I'm told, I've read, that the second in charge in the US Pacific Command is an Australian general. So yes, embedding us into the US armed forces means we will go to war when the US decides to go to war. And that's a very concerning... I mean, we've, we've seen what happened in Vietnam, we've seen what happened in Iraq. There's a whole slew of other conflicts where it's been very questionable whether there should have been a war at all and tying ourselves to the Americans. And the, the other thing, these subs... I mean, there's so many problems with them on so many levels. These subs are... If we're lucky, we're going to get the next, the first one in 20 years. If we're really lucky, we'll get the last of the eight by the 2060s. Do we really want to tie ourselves to the US for the next 40 years? It's very, it seems strategically really unwise. Were there any voices there from the Pacific? Yes, we had speaking at our event, Ambassador Sito, he's from Kiribati, and he was speaking at this event about his concerns and the concerns of the Kiribati people. At the actual non-proliferation review conference, as I said, the Indonesians were concerned and there were certainly others in the Pacific who spoke out against the concerns of proliferation of highly enriched uranium. There was a very good paper that came, working paper that came from the Norwegians, um, I'm just trying to remember who the other two were, that had basically spelled out that we should be globally... I mean, for years, Australia has been trying to get less highly enriched uranium in in the world. We've, we've especially turned over, changed over our reactor to say that it does not have highly enriched uranium, the, the, the research reactor at Lucas Heights. So there was a paper from the Netherlands, Norway and South Korea that talked about how important it was to reduce highly enriched uranium because that was a permanent threat reduction and really a fundamental element of shared efforts to strengthen nuclear security. So it's really, it, it's so counter to what Australia's been doing itself for decades. And there's a sort of a breathtaking lack of concern about the implications of actually removing this highly, the precedent that is set by really massively increasing highly enriched uranium outside the nuclear weapons states and what that means for other countries and them acquiring this bomb fuel. Each submarine of these eight submarines would have the equivalent, it's estimated, of about 20 nuclear weapons per sub. And what about all the nuclear-free zones around the world? How does this work in with that? It doesn't. It just doesn't. I mean, it's sort of like 
there's a Southeast Asian nuclear weapons free zone, there's a, a South Pacific nuclear weapons free zone, it, there's even an ASEAN zone of peace, freedom and neutrality. It, it, it doesn't with those at all and those, that's why there's been concerns by countries that you know this is really escalates regional tensions and it, it increases the risk of it increases polarization it increases nuclear risk it also yeah does you do worry about the sort of militarization and the arms race this is a huge expenditure i mean 171 billion and that's aspi that's their latest estimate and i've read another estimate saying 200 billion a lot of Expert commentators have said we'd be much better off with off-the-shelf diesel submarines, which are much, much, much cheaper. And the other thing is whether in the 2050s, you know, we're talking 30 years away, whether these submarines will in fact end up being obsolete because there's certainly major developments in how in tracking submarines with sort of artificial intelligence and satellites and new sorts of lasers, blue-green lasers, um, and drones, and whether if these subs, when they're trying to get them, would be a, a terrible irony if we've spent billions and billions and billions of dollars getting something that by the time it's actually delivered is obsolete. So it seems to me very poorly thought through. And as a medical practitioner for many years, you'd be saying that it'd be much better if that money was spent on helping our hospitals cope with all the things that are going on at the moment. Oh, there's so many things. Um, we've got rising levels of poverty. The health system is in crisis. Housing, I mean, public housing, is, there's a really good article in the conversation about two years ago saying if we spent $5 billion a year for the next 15 years, we could really provide a lot of public housing and do a lot to markedly reduce homelessness. There's the close the gap. You know, the, the Aboriginal health outcomes still need a lot of work and a lot of financial support. We've got a justice system that's in crisis. People are are staying on bail, are not on bail in remand for way too long before they actually get to court. And the other thing is what, what economists call the opportunity cost. By focusing on this, it means we're not focusing, it takes away energy from focusing. Imagine if we had, for the submarines, we have over 100 public servants who have been tasked with making this happen. They haven't been tasked with thinking about whether it's a good idea. They've been tasked with making it happen. And imagine if instead of that, we had 100 public servants tasked with doing the very best we could on climate change. And if they had a budget of $170 billion, we would be so much in a better place. This, these submarines, they talk about security, for people's security having these submarines. Well, I think the things that would make people much more secure would be adequate health care, adequate housing, you know, not this massive increase in people living in poverty. Yeah, there's so many things we could do to make Australians more secure, and I really don't think these very large nuclear submarines do that at all. And as if we haven't got enough problems already with um, nuclear waste in the world at the moment, where no one, nobody knows what to do with it. Yep, exactly. And we don't know whether we'd end up with this nuclear waste or whether it'd go back to the the US or the UK. The UK don't know what to do with their nuclear submarines. They've got a whole lot of them banked up in a in a port because they don't quite know what to do with them. So they're all sitting in a port. And it's sort of absurd to, to think, yeah, it's, it's a problem that people just don't want to think about. So they don't think about it. Did you get to sit in on any of the other sessions while you were there, Margie? Um, unfortunately not. Because I got there at the beginning of week three, 
all the official sessions are closed by that point. They're open for the first two weeks and then they go into what are called the three committees. And so I didn't. Also, I was there for such a short time, I actually spent most of the first day getting accredited to go in and then I met with the Australian delegation and on the second day I was getting ready for the event and then I left. <laughs> it was a very flying trip. But certainly when I was there in 2017, it was quite sort of magical to sit in the room and see all these international diplomats talk with each other with instantaneous translation. I mean, to have six, six languages translated simultaneously, it's the, the United Nations, for all its flaws, it's pretty exciting to see all these countries sit down and talk with each other openly about what they're thinking. Are there any expectations to come out of this five-year meeting? I think the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty in many ways is an emblem of the problems of consensus decision-making in that in the end, I think we'll be very disappointed. It's not final yet. It's the end of the week when the final statements come out. But because it's consensus, resolutions tend to get watered down and watered down and watered down until they become almost meaningless. And I'll be very surprised if there are useful outcomes from this review conference. But I may be being unduly pessimistic. But I think that's one of the beauties of the Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons. It was a straight-out vote. So it had 122 countries out of the 190-odd that belonged to the United Nations. And so that was a straight-out vote rather than having to be consensus, which meant that it could be a treaty with really strong language and really strong aspirations. And, and the other thing is a footnote. If Australia does go ahead with these submarines, which I think is, is breathtakingly unwise, but if Australia does decide to go ahead with these submarines, it's all the more reason that this government should be signing and ratifying this treaty because that would show that Australia really isn't using these submarines as a thin end of the wedge to get nuclear weapons. Anyway, so I'm not optimistic about the outcomes of this review conference, I have to say. Well, it sounds as though there's plenty of work ahead for ICANN and MAPW. <laughs> there's never a shortage of work. <laughs> if people feel like doing something about this, please ring up or email or go and see your local Member of Parliament, be they Labor, be they Liberal, be they Independent. We've got to get these Members of Parliament to realise there's a, there's a, there's a groundswell of public opinion behind this. And of course, the, the other issue that it is, a lot of people don't know, even know this conference is happening. I kept in the dark about what is actually happening. How many people know that there's a, a major conference in the UN at the moment? Yeah, no, I think a lot of people don't know. The other thing that's really bothering in terms of secrecy is, A, how the AUKUS submarines deal was negotiated, which was secret, and the presented to the Labor Party with just 24 hours' notice. And the second issue is that these safeguards that they're talking about with such pride are also being negotiated in secret, and that isn't appropriate either. I mean, it's it, there's too much secrecy by half around the whole thing. We need more examination of these subs out in the open. Okay, so how do people get on touch, in touch with your two groups? If they do ICANN Australia, it's ICANNW.org.au. And certainly if they do the Medical Association for Prevention of War, into their search engines, they will, they will see that this is, they'll get MAPW. And just going to see your local member and saying, we need to sign and ratify this treaty and we need to have a really clear examination of these submarines because they're, they're really unwise on a lot of levels. 
Okay, Margie, and great to talk to you. Likewise, Jan. Thank you. Dr. Margie Beavers, back from the Non-Proliferation Review Conference of the Treaty of the Non-Proliferation of Nuclear Weapons, the NPT, in New York. And as she predicted in that interview, the meeting did not reach a consensus outcome after four weeks of negotiations. You are listening to 3CR Community Radio 855 AM on digital and online. 3CR Radical Radio. Every Tuesday at 9.30pm on 3CR, 855 AM, the Greek Resistance Bulletin brings you news from the social movements of Greece in English and Greek, news from the anti-fascist and anti-racist front, and news from actions and political initiatives from below. Κάθε τρίτη βράδυ, 9.30 με 10, στον 3CR 855 AM, η εκπομπή Greek Resistance Bulletin σας παρουσιάζει στα ελληνικά και τα αγγλικά νέα από την Ελλάδα των κινημάτων, νέα από το αντιφασιστικό μέτωπο, νέα για τις δράσεις και τα εγχειρήματα από τα κάτω. Greek Resistance Bulletin, σπάζοντας το μονοπόλιο της ενημέρωσης. The Seoul Masni Center for Performing Arts and Monica Singh Sangwan present a year-long season of solo and group Odyssey dance performances on Saturday, September 17th and 24th at Dance House and October 1st at Fairfield Amphitheater. All shows will be accompanied by our live Odyssey music ensemble. Odyssey is an Indian classical dance style that is both traditional and contemporary in its intrinsic nature. Join us for what can only be described as a pilgrimage where the dancer and musicians merge together as co-performers. Tickets available via our website, sohamasni.org. This project has been financially supported by Regional Arts Victoria and Creative Victoria. We also acknowledge Dance House, Multicultural Arts Victoria and 3CR Community Radio as supporters in this endeavour. From the Northern Rivers area of New South Wales to Port Augusta in South Australia. That's been the journey so far for permaculturist Wayne Wadsworth, better known as Wadsey. I caught up with him last Friday and asked him first, what was the grand plan? Actually, there's a few grand plans. My children live in Adelaide, so I wanted my, my daughter lived in Brisbane and she's moving to Adelaide, back to Adelaide, so I wanted to be a bit closer to the grandkids on a personal front. But the grand plan is to green the desert. Um, we'll have a greening the desert project. I think the greening the desert might be a little bit past my limits, but um, yeah, to see how we would green the desert. A lot of it's based on work that Peter Andrews has done in Australia and other pioneering people in terms of regenerating soils and things like that. But um, I think the most impressive scheme in the world at the moment is um, what's happening in China, where they've 
Green deserts worse than ours, um, the size of Belgium. So I think if the Chinese can do it, why can't we? What have they got planned? They've done huge areas of the Gobi Desert. So what they do is they put in, in you know, obviously trees and um, shrubs and plants and uh, limited irrigation systems and things like that. And once they get the trees and plants up, then they bring back the animals. And, but as I say, they've been doing it now for probably seriously for that. 15 and 20 years and with some pretty amazing results. And there's some, there's some very good documentaries on it as well. Just wondering, trip from um, the Northern Rivers to where you are now, were there any interesting mm-hmm. ecological, environmental places you visited on the way? Yeah, well, I sort of visited Melbourne. That's uh-huh. ecologically interesting. Yeah. <laughs> In that huge piles of traffic back on the road now that COVID sort of station lies more or less back to the un, unsustainable ecological city life. So that was an interesting, interesting few weeks. But um, look, there's been a lot of lessons on the big learning curve for me because I've actually mostly worked in the subtropics and tropics of my career as a, an environmentalist and regenerating those sorts of lands. So desert's a whole new learning curve for me. I'm sort of looking at Port Augusta as the focus centre because people aren't aware that Australia actually started a greening the desert before anyone even talked about it. We started greening the desert before the 1950s when they started putting the water pipes in from the Murray River all the way up to Woomera Rocket Base. So there's probably about a thousand kilometres of water pipes running from the Murray that has been the lifeblood of most, well, all the towns that are connected to that pipeline. So in effect, Australia probably started the first post-war greening the desert project in the world. Probably the United States did a bit as well, but um, unintentionally, I might add, but all the towns along the way, obviously, people have planted trees and um, gardens, and so you have these little sort of oases. You know, you come to these little towns, and there's lots of trees growing and lots of things, and that's based on the Murray River. So if the Murray River was to run dry, we'd be up Shit Creek without a paddle. Well, it's it's got its problems, hasn't it? It certainly has. And we had the last drought. Murray was looking pretty pretty sick, wasn't it? You can't extract more from something that's being put in, and obviously the amount of water that's coming up uh, into these desert areas is, is vast. It's uh, we're talking about a lot of water. People use it pretty much the same as people in the city do, so that's not sustainable in the long run, obviously. So you know we have to look at technologies that we don't need to drag the water out of the river and we can still have water. And what's the plans for you? Plans for me is I'm just sort of um, trying to settle myself into Port Augusta and get involved with... Uh, I've got an amazing garden here, a desert garden, a drylands garden, and it's about 100 acres or so of land and the government's put a lot of money into it and local communities put huge amounts of effort into it. It's very... Very uh, amazing garden, actually. So I've been going there and doing some, on a steep learning curve, finding out about um, what plants I, I found some shrub the other day at the garden that the woman was doing a tour. The roots go down something like 50 metres in the ground. That's oh, uh, quite God. amazing. No? Yeah. I know. I said, wow, that's a cool plant. <laughs> now, that'll, that'll be one for greening the desert. So I'm putting together the basics of it, and I've um, registered a greening the desert website. So... That should be up and running in the next two or three weeks. We'll see what happens. 
Tell us a bit more about the plants that they've got there. Quite amazing, because as I said, I really don't know much about desert plants, but there's obviously salt bush. I've been learning about that. That can survive very high levels of salt. It's also eaten by stock and kangaroos and emus, and that's most, it's mostly food in, in desperate times when that's pretty much all that grows. That's, that's all that you can see in the desert. But the desert's actually quite green at the moment because there's been quite a lot of rain happening, as you know, right throughout the central Australia. So, um, yeah, as I came down, Lake Eyre was full. Most of the lakes going up were full and coming back down, they evaporated a fair bit. But it's quite amazing because you visit some of these areas and the plant life grows right up to the edge of the lake and the salt levels are three or four times that of the, of the ocean. And these plants have adapted to these conditions. You know, the lakes can run completely dry for three or four years and they get flooded and fish come back to life and frogs come back to life and birds move in and quite incredible really when you when you look at Mother Nature, what she can do. You know, be humble and learn from what she can do and add to it. Tell us about the bird life. Well, that's another amazing thing. You know, I didn't think there was ever much bird life in the in the desert. You don't think, well, there's no water, so where will the birds come? But the dry lands garden here in Port Augusta has got amazing bird life because most of the desert flowers, they, you know, they flower after rain. Not Some of them flower without rain, but a lot of them flower when they you know, get their every rain every three or four years when they get a decent amount. A lot of the bird life here are honey honey suckers and, you know, birds that suck on plants. And then obviously what happens when you plant a big garden like they have in Port Augusta, Birds and insects come back in because the food base for the insects and it starts building the soil and you get the birds, there's more food for birds, so there's more birds coming in and that whole cycle starts. And um, it's a bit the same with the with the estuaries and things like that. You know, the plants that grow in estuaries were taken out to build marinas or because they didn't, people didn't like them because they were smelly and muddy and this. But that was the breeding ground for huge amounts of fish. So when you took them out, the fish populations collapse so they're being you know people learning they're putting them back in again so yeah it's um it's been a a journey of learning hopefully i can take that learning and put it to some good and what animals are up there well you've got obviously got your kangaroo your emu not so much around port augusta area but um around towards alice springs a lot of um camels i saw quite a few shot camels on the side of the road which is a bit of a shame but um there, obviously, the Arabs are buying a lot of um, camels off us now because we've got apparently the best camels in the world. They're buying them as meat and as actually livestock to repopulate their own camel population. So, And sheep, of course, is most of the country from here, Port Augusta to Alice Springs, the sheep country. There's not much cattle, really. It's the land is too fragile for cattle. But um, obviously, they should be farming kangaroos, which make, make a lot more sense. And maybe emus, I don't know what emus would taste like, to be honest. Probably, probably taste like chicken, probably like a sinewy tip of chicken, probably. Now, you've talked a bit about, online, you've talked a bit about Woomera. Tell us what you found well, there. Well, Woomera's an amazing place. Well, I, I was, again, I think everyone thinks of Woomera as a rocket place, military sort of place, and of course it is. But the history of that place is quite amazing, too, because that started during the 1940s, it was surveyed in the 1940s, and then... Um, they started the Woomera base there in the 1950s and built a village and then found that they couldn't, there wasn't enough water to support it, so they brought the pipeline up. They extended the pipeline from Port Augusta up, up to there. 
So the pipeline runs all the way, the water line runs all the way to Woomera, but Woomera itself, it's sort of, the thing that amazed me about Woomera is that Australia is able to develop a lot of the rocket technology and the satellite technology uh, here in Australia, and it's, um, we've sort of lost all that technology, which is, to me, is a bit of a shame, really. I mean, I you know, obviously don't support military stuff, but a lot of that was used for civilian use as well, so, you know, all the satellites and that. That are going around and communicating, which we're probably communicating on right now. A lot of that um, forerunner stuff was developed in uh, in Australia. Sort of goes to prove that we can do pretty amazing things when we put our mind to it. And the tree planting there, the earlier tree planting. Ah, uh, well, the tree planting. Oh, yeah, the first trees were actually planted by the by the RAF, which from the museum there of a, one of the colonels or something planting the first tree there. So. Again, that was a very barren sort of desert, really. It, just, it was just um, salt bush, really. There's not even any trees in there. If you if you look outside the village, there's barely a, a shrub. It's just all um, milly and um, salt bush. So they've done a pretty good job, I have to say. It's, it's really lovely green spot, and they've, um, the people, the company that obviously does all the maintenance, I think, is a private company, Fiolan, I think they are, but they. Um, They've made a great job. You know, it's nice, clean, tidy. There's lots of trees. Um, it's sort of green. It's coming into the desert, and you've got this oasis, and it's it's a bit like that when you come all the way from Cooper Pedy down through South Australia, where the water pipe is stretched. You've got you know, little green towns. I mean, Iron Knob is where mining started in Australia in earnest. That was just a mining town. Again, they've got the water pipe there, and that's sort of been greened up. It's a, it's a dying town, but it's um. Again, you know, there's lots of interesting plants growing there and lots of desert plants and people have learned uh, by living in the desert, you know, what, what survives and what doesn't. And it's the same with Wyala. Wyala was started as a steel building town, sort of in the desert, and they've got amazing wetlands in there um, that I visited the other day and that was that sort of blew me away. There's probably 20 acres of wetland and they've um, reconstituted their grey water and sewage water and, and water from the road and designed systems to filtrate and clean that and made an amazing park. So yeah. so uh, anyone contemplating going to the desert, you, you have to visit these places because they're quite amazing. What did you learn about the indigenous peoples? Well, obviously they they lived here for a hell of a long time. I'm not saying 60,000 years, it was probably, I'd say probably a lot longer. And they, you know, as when it was Gondwana land, when it was one big continent, and separated um, most of uh, Central Australia was a was a waterway. It was a prehistoric, very large animals living in there. And the Aboriginals came along, and the climate was going under changes as as Australia drifted north and becoming drier. And I think probably the fire stick farming didn't help that desertification of the land either. But certainly the Aboriginal people learned to live with the land rather than against it. And you you know you have the bizarre thing really where Stuart and all those white explorers went into the desert thinking they were going to find, um, like in America, you know, huge, vast lakes and land and lush forests and all that sort of thing. And, of course, uh, they got in there and realised it's, it's a vast desert, not a vast thing like the United States. So a lot of pastoralists came into these areas in early settlement days and brought the sheep and the cattle and, and wheat and all that sort of thing. Most 
most of them failed when it came to a drought, you know, the severe droughts in the 1800s and early 1900s, wiped most of them out and they, most of them left to go to Adelaide or Melbourne or wherever, Queensland maybe. Again, they sort of learned how to manage land a bit better, but, you know, like they had the rabbit-proof fence which stretched for hundreds of miles and some other weird fence that was supposed to keep the rabbits out and <laughs> it's quite bizarre when you think of it that someone would build you know, a thousand kilometres of, of fences to keep rabbits on one side and they weren't going to jump to the other side, you know, because it never worked, of course. Um, and, and there's a famous Aboriginal story about the Aboriginal girls um, following the, you know, the rabbit-proof fence. I think it was called the rabbit-proof fence, wasn't it? And, of course, you know, the, the desert sands sort of brushed over the area and the rabbits just walked over the top. So <laughs> the, the silliness of, of Europeans sometimes that... That you see a lot of here. Of course, the Aboriginals didn't bother to build fences because they knew that, um, you know, they knew the seasons and where to get the food and and how to live in the desert. Like, well, you know, we think we'll just bring the, the cattle and the fences in and all will be good. Are Indigenous people still part of the communities there? There are some communities. I would say in, in a large part quite dysfunctional in, in terms of, you know, they lost a lot of their heritage and their knowledge. I mean, there's obviously there's still quite a few elders around who have quite good knowledge about plants and things like that, but certainly the younger generation, I, I think that's coming back. There's a very strong push here to bring back a lot of knowledge from Aboriginal times, you know, and to learn from that. I mean, I just picked up a book, Australian Medical Plants, which is obviously plants that have been grown here for thousands of years, and a lot of plants that Aboriginal people use for their medicine. So... You know, Aboriginals had developed their own medicinal system here that obviously kept them healthy and, and pretty fit, and that, that got lost, you know, with European settlement and modern petrochemical medicines. But uh, yeah, there's a very strong push here to study those plants and hopefully bring them back for medicinal purposes. And, and yeah, there are some Aboriginal people with that knowledge, but I'd say they're pretty far and few between. Are you planning on staying in Port Augusta for a while? Yeah, the plan is to pretty much shift here, really, out of the tropics, which is a bit of a bit of a change for me. I'm used to being spoiled in the tropics, where it gets lots of rain and you put something on the ground and it grows. So, yeah, I'm I'm enjoying it, and I think there's a good op- opportunity here for um, you know adding to my own knowledge and doing a bit of good work. So, we'll give it a go. How does permaculture fit into what you're doing? Well, you know, obviously it, it fits in pretty well because Bill Morrison and I, I've had, I've had to pull out Bill's book, the Permaculture Manual, and read up of stuff on drylands because it's many years since I've read it. And again, Bill came through. There's a lot of really good information and stuff that I'd, you know, I read the book years ago, but I've never read much on drylands because I've never really worked on drylands. So lots of really good information in the design manual that I'll be putting into practice. A lot of knowledge here too, both black and white. Um, obviously, a lot of the white folk here are very supportive of Aboriginal culture and you know, plants and things like that. So there's a good you know, communication basis between the, the black and the white fellas. So um, hopefully I'll learn from both of them. Talk about the white fellas that are living there. Are they, the ones that you're working with, are they from the area or are they like you? They've come from somewhere else. A lot of the white fellas here have lived here you know, generational. You know, the people obviously that are working in mining companies would be it's most of it's fly in and fly out now, so more of them come from Adelaide or, you know, they fly in and fly out. But yeah, there's quite a long generational 
people that you know lived here for quite you know for Wyala, for example, was established as as a um, shipbuilding town and, and steel mining. So a lot of the peoples that came there in the in the fifties and sixties have stayed on, even though the steel milling there they're still milling there, but nowhere near like they're not building ships, for example. So when they're building ships in Wyala, there was a very big population of um, uh, well, migrants from all around the world, basically. They had Italians, Greeks, Germans, you know, mostly Europeans, to be honest, but, you know, from a, a large variety of people. So they had Italian clubs and Greek clubs and Croatian clubs and all that sort of thing. And a lot of those people have stayed on. You know, they've either sort of retired there. I mean, the, their children have probably had a lot of them left Wyala because not enough work and probably gone down to Adelaide or Melbourne or Sydney and into the big cities for work. Like Wyala, for example, has got a lot of lot of social clubs, you know, football, soccer, and all those sort of clubs and different clubs of beekeepers or whatever you find in a normal, quite large place. And I, you know, like any white community, there's a certain amount of racism, but I think it's no worse than anywhere else, if you know what I mean. And there's obviously a lot of white folk working with Aboriginal people and vice versa to make the situation better for both. So there's a good cross-section and like any town, you find the good, the bad and the ugly. (laughs) Same bullshit, different place. (laughs) Do people talk about the changes with the climate? Yeah, there's quite an awareness here. I'll give you an example. This is probably the biggest area in Australia for wind and solar on any large scale. Like they've got a hell of a lot of windmills here. Loads a lot, and they're putting in a hell of a lot of solar here as well. So potentially, will be the sort of Saudi Arabia of energy. You might be aware that Tesla put the first big battery not far from here, to you know, and they had all that power nonsense that over solar when the Liberals were in power. They said, oh, you know, solar can't do the trick and blah blah blah. And must say, well, I'll build a big battery because you're going to need to store your energy. And he said, I'll do it. I think in a hundred days or something. And if I can't, I'll, I'll give it to you for free. And he he uh, did it in a hundred days and. And it's it's paid it's paid for itself already. So, you know, again, that technology that's the sort of technology we need to be looking at. We're serious about um, the whole carbon thing. We need to be serious about wind and solar and biomass and and the ability to store it. There's also another amazing place here called Sundrop Farms, which supplies tomatoes to coal supermarkets, and they have a great big tower that shines light onto panels that superheats water and drives a steam turbine and they, they actually desalinate their water so they're not dependent on water coming from the Murray River. And they grow hundreds of tonnes of tomatoes from desalinated water and supply coal supermarkets. So that's a pretty good model for you know growing food not using the Murray River. So again, that technology is here. It's expanding really. And I suppose if the feds are serious about these are the sorts of projects that they'll fund. And what's powering the desal plants? The desal plant is, is powered by solar. It's pure solar. Um, right. So it's not connected to the grid. It's all run. I think they even export a little bit of energy to the grid. But yeah, the whole whole thing's run by it's a fairly old technology. It's actually like a, a big pole in the air, probably 200 foot up in the air. And it's got a big mirror on it that reflects onto panels and that creates hot water and then they store that energy in molten salt, and when they need the energy, they basically turn on a steam turbine to drive the electricity, to drive the plant and all that sort of thing. But um, solar technology is 
come on a lot since that technology. So you've got solar panels with the same energy efficiency as as a um, steam turbine, and obviously less less moving parts and a lot less maintenance. So it's probably a technology that will probably have a natural death um, as solar panels become more and more efficient. You know, once we get to 500 watt solar panels, it's sort of you know nothing's really going to people accept wind. I mean, wind energy here is pretty good because we get a lot of wind, so it's obviously, you know, they're putting a lot of windmills around the place. Interesting enough, Port Augusta is where the coal-powered fire station is, where it supplies about 40% of the electricity for South Australia, and the coal mine is only about 30 kilometres from here, so that that coal gets shipped in, and well, that uh, power station is still operational, so I imagine that'll be phased out as we bring on more solar and wind energy, have its natural life cycle, and then probably close. We see photos of that battery farm. Have you been close up to it? The um, one that Nuss put in? Yeah. Yeah, I, I visited there. I, I didn't go inside. It was closed at the time, but I took a few photos of the battery. The batteries, I was quite amazed. It's not that big, you know, like it's... um quite a few banks of them but I was expecting it to be you know more bigger than it was but obviously it's doing the trick there's quite a lot of wind actually there's not actually in Port Augusta it's probably what 40 kilometers from here up in the uh, up in the mountains but a very windy area so obviously you know good for wind energy and that's where they put the the batteries but you know we're, we're developing some pretty good battery technology I think in Australia but again we haven't we haven't invested it, whereas, whereas um, Elon Musk is quite happy to invest um, money into sustainable technologies and the Australian government isn't. It's a bit of a shame, really, but hopefully this mob will be better than the last mob. What are your plans for the next few months? Well, I'm going down to a biochar conference in Adelaide, which is on the 8th of September. So I'm hoping to pick up some good tech there. And visit some people in Adelaide who are doing some stuff on soils and hemp and all that sort of stuff. Do a bit of learning on that front, and then come up to back to Port Augusta and um, try to get this Green the Desert project happening. I'm looking at a bit of land in a place called Iron Knob, is where the with the first sort of major iron production happening in Australia. It's about 50, 60 kilometres from Port Augusta. And maybe setting up just a small mini project there with all the technologies that we need for green the desert. So that's the sort of plan at the moment. I'm just sort of trying to get a few people to get to that. And that's sort of where we're going from here. <laughs> we'll see what happens. I'll fall on my bum, I'll fall on my bum. If we make something happen, we make something happen. I'd imagine you've um, had to invest in a few clothes. What's he? I have, I have <laughs> a few warm clothes. I tell you what, it's been ruddy freezing here tonight. Because all the cold wind comes off the Flinders Ranges, because Flinders Ranges is just behind Port Augusta, so obviously all the cold air moves from the top of the mountain down to the lowest place, which is here, so it certainly gets pretty nippy. Again, that's been a, a good learning curve, because we, got a lot of, we get a lot of dew on the trees, and obviously that's what waters the trees in dry climes, uh, the uh, temperature differentiation, creating dew. So that's, again, been another... So a bit of a learning curve. I get up in the morning and my, my camper van is dripping water <laughs> and frosted over. So hopefully it's going to warm up. Yeah. yeah it's a couple of nice. I mean, yeah, we get nice sunny days here, which is pretty nice. Not so cloudy and miserable like Melbourne is in the winter. Just finally, you're obviously in contact with your friends back on the 
the northern rivers, how are they getting on? Yeah, it's obviously things are better, but I was just talking to a friend the other day, he said Lismore's still pretty bleak. Um, a lot of people don't still haven't got power on. Uh, people are sitting in their homes with candles, and, and it's been pretty wet, and they're predicting another El Nino for next year, so I think I'm glad to be out of it, to be honest. Try <laughs> the dry desert, although I must say it's been raining a fair bit in the desert as well, so they get more in a, in a good flood three days than we get in the whole year. So, you know, northern New South Wales and Queensland, they probably need to switch to growing bamboo and making things from that. Keep in touch. Which out. Well, let you know at the um, Biochar Conference patch we connect um, after the 8th. It's on the 8th of September, so maybe we do another little a little connect after that. And we certainly will. That's Wadsey. Real name, Wayne Wadsworth, but better known as Wadsey. Used to be part of 3CR many years ago, and he's now travelling at the moment, but he's interested in permaculture, biochar, and the environment in general. Stay locked to 3CR. Tune into the Celtic Folk Show every Tuesday at 3pm with me, Anne McAllister. Ross House has community meeting rooms available for hire at subsidised rates. Perfect for small meetings, student study groups, Zoom conferencing and seminars. Facilities include free Wi-Fi, display screens for presentations, projector and sound system and a Zoom conferencing system. HEPA filter units have been placed in every meeting room. You can book and pay via their website, rosshouse.org.au or contact reception during office hours on 9650-1599. Ross House is a 3CR supporter. Sri Lanka has gone from the headlines of the mass media, but the crisis remains for the people of that country, facing shortages in everyday aspects of life. But where are the Rajapaksas? We'll look into that in this interview with Lionel Bopuji, veteran Sri Lankan leftist who was twice jailed and tortured for his role as a former leader of a mass liberation movement in the 70s and 80s. Lionel now lives in Melbourne and continues to be an outspoken defender of human rights and social justice. Lionel, when we last spoke, you talked about the multitude of IMF loans that have flooded Sri Lanka in recent years. Now a team from the IMF is meeting the Sri Lankan president to finalise, hopefully, another bailout package, possibly $3 billion. Where is that going to lead? I think it is the 17th loan package still being negotiated. There is no guarantee that uh, the government will receive this package because from the latest I heard that IMF has asked the government to restructure the uh, major loans that the government has with China. IMF has asked that and IMF is awaiting what would happen probably. But whatever it is, from wherever they get uh, the loans or aid or whatever, in whatever form, uh, they get this assistance. The government has not prepared to avoid all the 
mismanagement, corruption and wastage that occurred with the assistance they previously got. According to what I have heard, out of the international assistance they received, only a certain percentage, as far as I can remember, only about 30% has been used productively for projects for which those assistance uh, was allocated. For example, I would say recently India provided some assistance because there is a huge food insecurity issue. I think uh, 70% of the population skips a meal. They are malnourishing. And uh, that is uh, the United Nations report. So India provided some money, uh, some assistance to provide food. And what the government did is that money was allocated to import steel from somewhere else. This is the problem we have. For example, Australia previously gave, I think, $23 million is for similar purposes because of the food issue Sri Lanka is having at the moment. Uh, Australia said we will give this assistance and it should go, it should go to the people who are in need to provide food. Uh, but we don't know whether they are actually providing food or whether they are using it uh, for something else. And I think Australia again uh, gave $25 million uh, for the same purpose. And what has happened is the government has all the money for an exchange to bring tear gas, these uh, water cannons. They have brought new machinery to be employed against protests. From where do they get this? Either they are diverting funds from other sources. There is another example I could cite. That was the, the, the recent protest, you know, mainly it occurred because there was lack of essential food, essential items. Uh, for the people uh, to satisfy their basic needs. There was lack of fuel, uh, food, and so on. So what the government did is part of a World Bank loan they received from some other project, they repurposed part of that project and imported petroleum and uh, imported some fuel so that they could get rid of all the uh, long queues they have. Now, again, long queues have appeared. The, the issue is that all the assistance the government gets from uh, other governments or other um, uh, lending agencies or from the diaspora, they could divert it for their other purposes, you know, for nefarious purposes or to uh, bring in uh, armament and other apparatus they need to repress protests. So it is essential that all the assistance provided by others, you know, including diaspora, to be made conditional that those money has to be used for the purpose that they are sent to, either to help people or if it is for a particular project, that it should be strictly restricted for, to be used for that particular project. But it doesn't happen. Even IMF, we still don't know. And the government, the, one of the major demands the protesters had, and even the diaspora has demanded, that they will be, diaspora and other agencies will be willing to help get out of the current crisis situation if the government establishes measures to ensure transparency, accountability, and uh, arms and transactions of whatever the government does, you know, sort of, but 
government hasn't done anything government doesn't care it it is, it is not interested in doing those things so they will be doing the same things that they have been doing for the last 74 or years that is the issue we have lionel have any of the lender countries or organizations addressed the issue of the huge amount of the budget of sri lanka which goes to the military now for example australia as far as i know australia has clandestine agreements with the sri lankan government for example very recently after the labor government came to power home affairs minister uh, mcneil that minister went to sri lanka as soon as the labor government came to power and she signed a secret deal with the uh, sri lankan government to supply fuel to uh, the navy petrol boats and uh, and uh, also to the air force and they have refueled in india so india will be paid by australia to uh, supply fuel to the navy and the air force and there are other agreements that australia has signed with the security forces in sri lanka so we can't expect anything of that nature uh, for the foreign governments to uh, put as a condition now the military out of the salary bill of the government the military expenditure the salary bill of the salary bill to the uh, three armed forces excluding police is more than uh, i think 50% i can't remember exactly i am giving this interview from outside home so i don't have any access to any information after the war there is no military situation or conflict situation armed conflict situation in sri lanka and they didn't reduce the army instead what they did is they increased the military expenditure and they cut down the expenditure for health and education this continuing and then most of the armed this this expenditure for the armed forces is mostly unproductive what the lending agencies and anybody who is providing assistance to the sri lankan government should demand that the sri lankan government make use of this money productively and not to increase not to not to expand the security forces or increase military expenditure or anything uh, like uh, even the employment in uh, in the state sector most of the people who have been employed as a result of many political parties who have promised that they will provide employment this is pre election and when they come to power they will just put these staff uh, people they will absorb people and just put in somewhere and that is why the state petroleum corporation electricity board and so many other agencies are loss making agencies because they have employed people much more than necessary for the proper functioning of the, uh, those corporations so there is extra staff and i am not asking the government to sack these people they could employ these extra people productively in in other ways so they should do that so a lending agencies should demand that but they are not demanding that sort of thing and they are asking we should impose burden on the ordinary people like uh, there will be all the subsidies uh, subsidies will be cut down and then prices of most of the essential items will go up and so on 
but these unnecessary expenditure wastage mismanagement or the privileges enjoyed by the ruling elite and their acolytes they won't give up so there should be a restructuring of the whole economy in a way that it will become more productive that is what should happen but uh, we can't expect that to happen under the current system of governance well if this doesn't happen all that money goes into a big black hole and those lending organizations can kiss their money goodbye that is what usually happens say i mean it is not only i mean it is not only in sri lanka this happens say i think i cited uh, pakistan for example i think they are asking for the seventh loan or something previous loan was about uh, 6 billion as far as i remember i may not be exactly <laughs> right but i as far as i can remember 6 billion and uh, now uh, the imf asked the government to restructure and do whatever things but nothing happened and now pakistani government is asking for 8 billion again so what happened to the previous money what went wrong they don't have that uh, sort of reviews what happened or you know to rectify the situation and this is not only happening with regard to imf all the other lending agencies are in the same situation whether it is asian development bank or china or india or they don't care they just supply money so long as they get their money back that is what it is you know they with interest all right well as nothing is happening is it the situation where sri lanka is in the indian ocean that allows these governments to get away with what they do uh actually what what i feel is that changes should happen internally now in sri lanka uh, probably you are aware that uh, the protest movement um, became stagnated and uh, they have temporarily uh, given up um, the way they were protesting and uh, it ha- they they have uh, regrouped and i think yesterday they had a major mobilization you know sort of all the uh, opposition forces got together and formed what they call national protest center which is a good thing which is something positive and they are launching uh, a protest on the 27th and um, in the meantime government has uh, intensified their repression and they have uh, arrested uh, i think about uh, more than 3000 people are in custody and uh, some of them have been released on bail conditions so that uh, they will not uh, take part in any protest anymore and uh, some of the people have been placed uh, uh, in detention under prevention of terrorism act and uh, international community including the united nations uh, have been demanding that the government to repeal the prevention of terrorism act but they didn't they have been uh, postponing that for so long for the couple of years now and they have used prevention of terrorism act now previously we all know that it was used against tamil speaking people during the conflict and uh, even after and the re- very recent case was uh, during the during the, pro- uh, the after easter bomb attacks they uh, detained tejas uh, hishbullah one of the famous attorneys uh, lawyers in sri lanka there are no charges against him and there was so much of international pressure and uh, local pressure so they had to release him the, the, i mean the, he still 
at the investigation but uh, he is out he, he is out now so these three people just because they protested peacefully okay the, the what they say is they have occupied the presidential palace and uh, they bathed in the president swimming pool and uh, they were uh, wearing president's towel or something you know sort of and for those they have been detained under prevention of terrorism act whereas those people who attacked the brutally attacked the protesters on may 8th may 9th i think they are still scot free there are no investigations and uh, most of them are in parliament and uh, so the government is pursuing the protesters and uh, they are intensifying that protest even yesterday there have been uh, several people who have been arrested and uh, this goes on and uh, the, one of the, this is a process of uh, not only repression it is a way of intimidating because some of the people like the trade union leader uh, joseph stalin now he has um, the the, uh, the police have filed several cases against him so most of his time will be spent in court because every every now and then there will be a case so he has to go to the court spend uh, half a day and then lawyers will have to appear so most of the time of these people will be wasted on court matters so that is what they are doing especially the use of prevention of terrorism act is uh, brutal and uh, the international community needs to demand uh, the sri lankan government to repeal that uh, that act and not to use it against peaceful protesters just on on very Uh, flimsy allegations the new president is called the protesters fascists yes yes he hasn't provided any 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 evidence to substantiate his uh, his allegation now the only thing he has said is that uh, there have been of course there have been some violence i would say not on, not from the part of the uh, protesters if you take say after the protesters were assaulted Uh, brutally attacked by mahind rajapaksa's thugs uh, on the 8th or 9th of may there were people who spontaneously protested against uh, the government and um, in many areas they went on rampage i think there were some uh, mp's houses that were burned down and we don't know who did it and uh, still uh, the, they say they are investigating so they associate all these other incidents with the protest movement which the protest movement heavily denies i, I don't think the protest movement is you know sort of uh, associated with uh, any of these violent activities as far as uh, i am aware of so uh, the government is using any uh, sort of flimsy allegations they have to detain the protesters Uh, as long as possible uh, i think ranil wickremesinghe's intention is to remain the president uh, remain as president as long as he can because this is the first time he was elected as uh, president of uh, uh, not elected he was selected by the parliament and uh, so he wants to uh, spend as much time in this post Can we focus on the Rajapaksa family? There are increasing calls for them, the two brothers, and maybe others as well, 
to face justice for crimes against humanity, for war crimes. There's been the UN High Commissioner. There's been the International Truth and Justice Project. Yet nothing is in train yet. No, nothing. Nothing as far as I can see. Actually, uh, with regard to that, now Gotabaya Rajapaksa, the former president who had to flee Sri Lanka because of the protests, now they say Ranil Wickremesinghe has spoken to Gotabaya Rajapaksa and he will be back on the 3rd of September back in Sri Lanka. So they are coming back. The war crimes, uh, I mean, United Nations, I think uh, their session is coming up in March or something next year. And there will be ongoing sessions, I think one in October or something. And there will be this bill that the Sri Lankan government submitted in 2015 or so, saying that they will implement whatever the requirements under the international human rights obligations. And now, there hasn't been much progress. There have been some progress in some aspects but not much. And uh, now even the current governments are going back on what they have done previously. So I think United Nations Human Rights Council need to see what they could do. And uh, the charges against Rajapaksas and also the bureaucrats and uh, the military people uh, against whom there are allegations that they have committed war crimes during the, uh, not only during the 30-year uh, war, but actually those things happened in 1971, 1988-89, but then there is no evidence because those days there was no technology, there were no mobile cameras to record anything. So uh, at least we, I think there are some evidence uh, with regard to what happened during the last phase of the war in 2009. So based on that evidence, I think uh, the, the, the United Nations and even the, the other countries need to take urgent action uh, with regard to the people who have been responsible for those crimes. Surely, though, if Rajapaksa comes back in early September, that's only going to inflame the situation? Yes, definitely. I think the struggle will uh, reappear. From my assessment of the situation, Ranil Wickremesinghe came to power, I mean, when he was selected as president. What he said is he will address the uh, economic crisis situation, he will bring essential foods and he will take, uh, bring, he will take the IMF loan and so on. And uh, that was the section of the protest movement because protest movement was not a unipolar movement as such. It was a dispersed, decentralized and um, a diverse group of people having different political views from the left to the right. And uh, some of the people, uh, I would say, uh, mostly uh, from Colombo, the, the middle class, urban, some of the urban people, you know, they withdrew from protesting as soon as Ranil Kramsinga became president. And uh, now those people expected Ranil to provide uh, whatever, you know, they were demanding. Not politically, main, main, not mainly political uh, demands, but the other economic demands. But nothing has happened except, uh, well, there are, there are no fuel queues and uh, some of the essential items are there. But it is a temporary measure because uh, they have diverted other funds to uh, bring some of those stuff. 
and uh, the crisis will become will come back in an intensified way i would say when that happens i think the struggle will come back uh, already the struggle is still there i mean it is going on and uh, if there is an island wide protest that comes up then i think uh, that will be that will create a very dangerous situation in sri lanka are you including the tamils in the north in this yes yes actually uh, in the in protest uh, what what i said that um, uh, national struggle center that was launched yesterday uh, in singala i know the name but i can't say the english name because there was no english name as such and uh, uh, that um, tamil national political parties had been there in that discussion so i think they are also inclusive and that is a good sign and uh, what what ranil lekramasing is doing these days is that he is trying to divide the community alone ethnic and other lines uh, he is very clever in that regard because ranil lekramasing is the main person who draw a wedge uh, within the ltt and let uh, karuna break away from the ltt and uh, this time what he is doing is he is uh, uh, violently supping some parts of the protest while he is providing concessions to some other sections for example some of the things we do you know I, we are also supporting so for example he lifted the prescription of i think at, i can't remember the exact number maybe about 10 organizations overseas uh, tamil organizations he delisted from the prescription now he is doing these things so that he could move the tamil community away from the protest movement during the protest the sri lankan communities you know singalis muslims tamils christians buddhists they were coming together and there was some form of unity that was uh, building up that was gaining momentum and now ranil ikramasinghe seems to be trying to divide that and destroy that unity and by that he is trying to create grounds to uh, single out some parts of the protest movement and suppress it entirely and the way ranil ikramasinghe is going about implementing the prevention of, or rather enforcing uh, using the prevention of terrorism act to suppress and then attacking some of the people say for example on the 18th of july he used uh, security forces to attack the uh, just after midnight around 2 am and uh, those type of things will create a very bad situation and it could lead to a bloodbath as i said before and uh, apparently uh, there are information spreading around to say that ranil ikramasinghe uh, with deshabandhu tennakon who is the deputy inspector general who was involved in uh, organizing and assaulting the protesters on the may on may 8th or may 9th and uh, then kamal gurunaratna who is the secretary of the ministry of defense against whom there are war crime allegations and all these people have got together 
than conspiring to spill blood again to create some uh, pretext so that they could use violence and suppress the whole protest movement that is what they are trying to do now okay lana we'll we'll keep in touch okay thank you jan and i've been speaking with lana gupji veteran sri lankan activist who now lives in australia You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.